Hello and welcome to the Australian's Money Puzzle podcast. I'm James Kirby, the world editor at The Australian. Welcome aboard, everybody. Well, now you know that the investment markets, there's two primary approaches generally to assessing an opportunity, an investment opportunity. One is what they call top-down, where people look at the economic contexts for an investment. And the other is bottom-up, right, where they look at a particular stock or they look at the company behind the stock and then they sort of figure that out and then they work their way up through that situation. I think in property, we probably all concentrate too much on the bottom-up approach where we think about their property or we think about their city uh, and perhaps we need to look at top down the economic context much more and because we need to know how is the market going when is the right time to buy when is the right time to sell um, and also uh, because it is actually a very very interesting way a helicopter view on the property market and I love particularly to try and get that from someone who is not so much not inside the property market but that is not trying to sell me property at the same time and I'm um, someone I've been talking to uh, for years about this Australian property we talk about economics but I've talked about property market in particular is Tim Tui. He's the market strategist at Yarra Capital. And he, I have dealt with him through various incarnations at Goldman Sachs, at Ellerston, always found him to be very independent and often, often unerringly accurate, actually, in his forecasts. Um, so having said that, we have not talked for quite a while. And I've no idea, to be honest with you, where he's coming from at the moment, but I'm going to find out. How are you, Tim? Good, thanks, James. Thanks, lovely Good to have you here. on the show. I, I actually, I did some quick research, and I was just looking at some of the uh, some of the work you've been doing of late, and you had been looking at um, what we might call a, the, the the squeeze, if you like, that uh, that is now starting to become apparent in the consumer uh, among consumers and younger consumers in particular, and this notion that obviously that uh, we're going to see uh, something of a consumer spending crunch coming down the line. But I want I want to just put everything we say here I, I basically want to fil- filter if you like through the prism of, of, of property investment so let's just look at where we are 12 rate rises and at the same time uh, three consecutive months of property price increases which whatever else it tells you it says prices have stopped falling and I see around the world that there is similar turn in residential property prices around the world and comparable economies so the first thing I want to ask you is there a point we take it that property prices can go up and rates can go up at the same time and that can actually go in tandem for a while but is there a point at which rate rises would actually stop this property price recovery in its tracks? Well, I think the answer is definitely yes. And if you look at history, history would suggest that interest rate hikes always slow down and often actually lead to declines in monthly house price moves. So if you look back at, say, 94, which was an aggressive rate hiking cycle, there were five hikes, but lots of them are large in size. That was was sufficient to drive prices negative. When you went to 2000, 2001, we also had about five hikes, and that took prices Negative, modestly. Yeah. And we did it again in yeah. 07, 08. It took seven hikes that time. Yeah. Um, and the GFC obviously helped bring prices down. And uh, we had seven hikes again through um, 09, 2010, which saw house prices decline through 2011. So so it's what's unusual this time around is that as soon as the RBA commenced hiking in May 22, 
house prices started declining straight away rather than after a lag of six or seven hikes. Right. Um, uh-huh. And so 12 hikes later, and four of which were actually 50 basis point hikes, um, house prices, as you mentioned, stopped declining um, in March and started recovery. So it's unusual that the house prices sort of increased, um, commenced uh, prior to the end of the rate tightening cycle, and that just doesn't sort of happen normally. So what we're observing in terms of interest rate hikes and monthly house price movements is just unusual. Um, Unusual. So, you, so, so have you ever seen that then? Have you ever witnessed Not that? Not this pattern, actually. Um, we had a, in terms yeah, of monthly right. house price moves and when the interest rate hikes have come through, this is unusual. And I guess if you believe that, you know, much of the house price gains that we've seen since interest rates really started coming down um, from, you know, pre GFC type levels can be traced just to lower interest rates, then you know, it's you would have expected that the crunch that we've seen on the capacity to borrow would have been sufficient to see ongoing mm. house price declines um, from these levels. Yeah. So I mean, so a million zillion dollar question for you. Um, I see. See, I just say come bank, right? Because you know, they're the heart of the engine, if you like, heart of the heart of the economy, nation's biggest lender. So what are they saying? Their chief economist or their econ- economics team, to be precise, have put out their forecast and said, house prices this year will, will, will rise on average by 3% and will continue to rise next year by 5 I don't know. What, where, where are you coming from yourself? Have you got numbers or what do you think of those numbers? Yeah, I think when it comes to forecasting house prices, it's important to be pretty humble because housing sentiments – Pretty fickle beast at the best of times. What does humble mean? But um, <laughs> exactly. But um, I think when sentiment turns, it can obviously build its own momentum. But I think there are some unique things going on here. So I would describe right. house prices and the gains that we've seen at the moment as not necessarily reflecting a you know fully functioning um, market clearing um, mechanism at the moment. So. Um, to answer it in short term, I'd say it's a short term um, dead cat bounce, um, but there are some longer term fundamentals that will turn it around. Um, so I think that, look, if it, give me a little bit of latitude on this one, I guess, I, the way that I normally think about hmm. housing is that for most people that are interacting with housing, we all do, of course, whether it's you know, as an owner or investor or as a renter, um, we all have an information set that we use that we form. Um, our decisions around and for most people that's recent house price movements or it might be the auction clearance rate or it might be discussions that they're having with other mm. people um, but the true model that's sort of governing house prices um, might be moving away from that and that might have more to do with things around you know housing formation rates or um, government policy um, or just some deeper variables um, so it's likely that most people are not operating with that full information set. So when prices start to move for whatever reason, it can kick in things like FOMO, um, you know, there can be greed, recency bias and some pent-up demand. So I think when we're looking at this one, for instance, we know that listings, you know, you know new listings or, or you know, houses for sale are down around 30% um, year on year. Yeah, that, okay, so just to clarify, so what you're saying is the amount for sale is down 30%. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. if you're in any other okay. market and the volume had sort of fallen away that much, you'd be a little bit circumspect that the price that you're seeing is actually the true market clearing price. So, if mm. you like, you know, an, an economist okay. might say that, you know, the shadow price is probably still falling away on normalized volumes now. 
Um, so there's mm-hmm. probably an element of that. Um, Do you think that? Yeah, I think there's. I think there's. A, that's that's one part of the story. Um, and I do okay. think that, of course, that you've got um, yeah this issue around, us, say, borrowing capacity. So the movement in interest rates that we've seen would have lowered average borrowing capacity from around nine hundred thousand um, to around seven hundred thousand, a bit under. And that's massive because over the yep. long run, house prices yep. tend to reflect that. So we've mm-hmm. got these, you know, this FOMO issue. Um, people using different information sets coming to a conclusion that maybe it's time to jump in. But the reality is, for most people, it's going to get tougher to afford um, to enter the market um, relative to where we were, obviously, twelve months ago. Um, so I think there's also. You know, there's, there's just no coincidence there that house prices started to rise at the first sign that the RBA actually either paused or when interest rate markets were actually contemplating rates coming down at the back end of the year. So there was an element of people looking forward on, and I think also there was an yes. element where people yeah. were, you know, highly attuned to the influx of, of immigration and the fact that it was coming on strongly. So, you know, there's some fundamental elements there that people are actually sort of playing forward. And thinking that you know this is this mm. is this might be a good entry point, but at the same time, I think there are other things that might be confusing the issue, and you know maybe we could delve into some of them. So, so putting all those variables on the table, does that ComBank forecast of three percent this year and five percent next year? Are you comfortable with it? Or are you? Or is what you're saying? Challenging that forecast. Well, I think the the monthly momentum we're seeing in prices at the moment will actually dissipate in the middle part of the year. But if we're looking at say on mm. into twenty twenty five, I think you can build a strong case that we'll be in a genuine undersupply of housing again, and rates will be coming. Well, would have already started to come down by that by that by that time. In the interim, though, yeah. you've got lots of different moving parts, and I think there is some, um, mm. you know, there's some. Room for debate about whether um, what people are extrapolating in terms of recent house price moves will be sustained. Okay. All right. Okay. So you've, you've certainly put them under question, shall we say? All right. Um, so our price, our house prices. Then um, uh, uh, we always always hear about how they're expensive and they're out of line with comparable economies and are out of line with history. Are they? Are they expensive? I mean, I read. Uh, international publications, uh, and this issue seems to be very common. Uh, but I'd love to know, have you any sense of like in terms of the core numbers, in terms of say the multiples of salary that someone, the average person pays for the average house in Australia versus other economies? Are we out of line anyway? Uh, or is it actually, this is the case in many countries now? Yeah, so I don't think you're going to find too many people that think houses are cheap. Uh, I think that's pretty the, the much mm-hmm. that... Um, a consensus view. Um, but there is a question of how you go about valuing them. And, you know, for instance, if we're to use an equity market type valuation tool, so a price earnings ratio and apply it yep. to housing, then, you know, they're incredibly expensive. Um, at the moment, it works out that Australian housing is about trades on a forward PE of about 42 times. <laughs> so, you know, the average over the long <laughs> it's like time a history. Tech, it's like a te- Australian house prices converted to stocks are like, are like tech yeah, titans, are they? And yeah, the average over time is about 25. Gosh. So if you're going to be very simplistic about it, you'd say that they're at least 40% overvalued on that basis. Yeah, I, yeah but you can live yeah, on them, exactly, Tim. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you can negatively gear but the them. Way, 
and you can hold them forever. <laughs> the way that everyone, or when you're trying to compare things across internationally, the tendency is to look at it on a price to rents mm. or a price to income basis. And it might surprise mm. you to learn that we're actually not that expensive on that one, on that basis. So on a price to uh, on which basis well, is that now? On both. So, for instance, if we were looking at okay. um, price to income um, basis, um, we're currently about five point one uh, on a price to income basis. The average, so you know, in, across our history, has been three point six. So on a so on a historical basis, we're obviously expensive, but on a relative okay. basis, um, you know, the, the LEC have spent a fair bit of time trying to build. A comparable data set, um, in both in terms of the prices mm. and the incomes and the rents. And so it's probably the best comparable data source that we have for that. And when it comes to price mm. to incomes, we're actually on pretty much on the average of the OECD. So places like Portugal, which had the golden ticket sort of, uh, incentives. So you have a whole lot of rich people going there to get citizenship, drove prices enormously. Canada, mm. which had to ban foreign investment. There was so much demand from foreigners. Netherlands is the yes, only other place yes. that actually had a um, tax-favoring system for investment. Um, they're they're all massively higher on the on a, on a price to income basis. So we're in the middle of the scale on that one. Yeah, we're a little bit range. more on a price to Does rent basis. We're slightly above the average on the price to rent basis. But yeah, on. So it's reflecting global factors here. Right? So it's reflecting the fact yeah, that yeah. rates have come down everywhere. That's been capitalised in the prices, and it's also clearly reflecting mm. some of the demographics. Yes, yeah, yeah. I wonder, uh, to some extent, uh, it always fascinates me to compare the Australian property market to overseas markets, but I wonder, does it actually matter? Does it matter to the market? It's not like anybody s- stands at an auction on a Saturday morning and says, oh, gee, we're out, of, we're, out of, we're out of culture with the Netherlands, so I won't bid. They don't, but what they also don't do is they don't compare it to other investment opportunities, which I find probably more fascinating. So, mm. you know, what's the rental yield yeah. on property? Well, in gross terms, it's about 2.2%. It's yep. equity market, um, about 4.2% um, before, dividend, before dividend franking, so... Um, yeah. You know, uh, what's the 10 year bond yields right on 4% at the moment? Those, no yeah. So, if the share market is, is, is yielding twice as much as well, houses. It's, it's, but it's worse and than that because the, the equity market, that's as I said, pre franking, and the, the gross rental yield is is, yeah, is before costs and agent fees. <laughs> so, the gap is. So, why does nobody negatively gear shares? Well, because they have the idea that they are minimising tax, and they they have a view that house prices will continue to go up at seven percent per annum, which they've done historically. So, mm. you know, but that's historical um, uh, price performance has obviously been a function of what the trend has done in interest rates. So, you need to be a little bit careful about that assumption. But if we're in the middle of the range. And if we're not crazy on a historic basis, then there isn't any dramatic evidence looming that it won't continue, is there? There's no. I'm, look, I'm not one that's actually arguing that house prices are going to um, fall precipitously. Um, I, you know, I believe mm. there will be a decent undersupply of housing in a couple of years' time, and I believe the RBA will have to be cutting rates well before that. So there is obviously some some basis to it. But I would be cautious, though, in using those long-run 
um, average price returns uh, on and, and yeah. extrapolating that forward and constructing your whole sort of wealth construction around that. I think that is yes. far different. And you know, what what have we observed over the last ten years versus you know versus the prior twenty five has been that house price declines are not that infrequent anymore. We've had bouts of them when they mm-hmm. where they have been going down. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not dramatic declines, but, you know, a 10% decline in house prices, if you get, is actually quite painful. Um, oh, yes. And I think mm. that's the that's the, sort of the issue that we have is that we're also not in a steady state anymore in terms of um, government regulation and policy. You know, Victoria is a good example of that. We just changed the land tax again. can really alter the economics of the investment. Um Sorry, Tim. Tim, was that always? The, I don't. I don't know. What, what is that new that the states would really change the the game inside of one state? I like Queensland considered taxing investors, if you remember, uh, for their investments even outside mm. the state. And Victoria is always uh, in in current regime, always reassessing property. But is that a new thing? Is that a new? Is that re- is that a regulation risk that's arrived? And new for investors, or has it always been? I think there? in this case, it's a it's a relative story where the state debt is, you know, ballooned to such a level um, with very few levers that they can actually pull that um, it would mm. be, a, and it already has been, um, a, a regular source of going back to that well to try and fill a fiscal hole. So I'm just all, all I'm sort of yeah. highlighting there is if fiscal's finances are in a steady state sort of arrangement, or, you know, a sustainable sort of arrangement. Then there's less risk, um, um, but you know we've got yeah, a couple right. of a mm. couple of states that are a little bit more distressed than than others. Yeah. Okay. So certainly the the the, the, the magnitude of the debt of the states vis-à-vis the the nation is out of line, isn't it? Uh, historic. That's 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 a new thing. Yeah, it is definitely. That's not something I think was in the um, forward view um, five years ago, for instance. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Keep that in mind, everybody. Whichever, whatever regard, we're, we're basically depending on what state you're in and what they're actually doing and what they might do. Um, so, Tim, immigration, migration. I suppose, if, in general terms, people are very quick to say, "Oh, hang on. Here's the thing: everyone misses three hundred thousand people coming into the country this year. It's like a city the size of Geelong." Um, because there's a pull forward, or at least there was none coming in for you, so they're catching up. And so this will totally change the dynamics of the market, particularly in the inner cities. That's why the inner cities are turning. Yeah. Uh, am I, uh, have I got that too high in the mix or too low in the mix, the, the migration? No, factor? it's important. Um, I've got to say, though, that when we, when we figure out and we look and think in terms of shortages or excess of housing through time, it's rarely the causal factor that causes the cycle to turn. It is more the supporting factor. Um, now, mm-hmm. net migration is, you know, as a lot of people would be aware, um, is a really big swing factor. So it normally drives two-thirds of population growth in Australia. And you know, it wasn't long ago, you know, a bit over a year ago where population growth was zero and now we've swung back to almost 2% already. And if you looked at permanent yep. arrivals, it's actually running much higher than what the numbers you quoted, James. It's actually closer to 400,000 at the moment. 
it's principally all students. Really? Mm-hmm. Skilled migrants are mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. relatively low in that mix at the moment. So you do need to yeah. think about it slightly differently because we tended to think in the past that essentially three migrants would add up, add up to one unit of additional housing. Um, if it's all students, right. then it's then it's slightly different. Um, but mm. I think the the general story here is we've got a you know the political um, uh, line has sort of shifted a little bit um, pre-pandemic to post-pandemic. If you might remember, there was a a view there that we should be really you know winding back on net migration. Now suddenly, not only have we gone through the prior peaks, it's actually. At the moment, the numbers are actually in line with the the really high levels that we got to at the peak of the capex boom for mining, and we're about to go right well through that. Now, and, and can I can I put a really simplistic notion to you? Um, in the history of Australia, in terms of property prices, is it the case that property prices are driven by largely by population growth over anything else? I would say um, it's principally driven by the level of interest rates. You wouldn't. Yeah, that's what gets capitalized. <laughs> so, in. are you saying? Um, are you? Are you? Are, so, so you're saying? But then, how come? How prices are, dry, are rising for three months in a row? Well, as I said, there's a few things there that have um, that have interplayed with this one. You know, restrictions in in volumes are part of that story. Um, you know, what we've seen mm. with an incredibly tight. Um, rental market is part of that story, which has been somewhat well, distorted. Is, is there anything on the uh, on the horizon to change that picture? Yeah, a little bit. Just now. I mean, so if you think about why did the rental market get so tight, you know, vacancy rates, as you probably know, mm-hmm. are around 1% for yep. each of the major capital cities at the moment. Um, and, you know, part of that we had to do with you know, directly to COVID. You know, we all wanted our space. We all wanted to be um, uh, well, not in shared households, and that saw the household... Um, mm. Numbers or people per household actually declined quite a lot, so that was part of the story. You know, we went out and wanted to rent separate places. We also were very cashed up. I mean, the government handed out eleven percent of GDP, and about eight percent of that went to the yes. household sector. Now they had yeah. their employment, they had income, and um, in essence, some of that spilled over. And there was also the element of Airbnb, which is um, stripped a whole lot mm-hmm. of houses out of the. Supply exactly. Out. You know, houses that out. should have been there mm. in the rental mix or normally be there in the rental mix um, suddenly were removed for short-term accommodation purposes. And, um, you know, all of that has, uh, I think, uh, you know, created an issue there that, that the when we look at, you know, things like the vacancy rate and you're saying, oh, well, is that important? Well, if this surely if the vacancy rate's around one, then we must have a massive housing shortage right now. It's like, well, yeah, we, but you need to correct for those things. And if the labour market is actually starting to turn a little bit, you know, that fiscal stimulus has been removed, of course, not just in terms of the fiscal side, but obviously on the monetary side, um, you know, it's quite likely that the that the vacancy rate will start to rise a little bit um, over, over okay. the next little bit. There is a there's a teeny bit of evidence of that, isn't there, coming through a teeny bit in recent uh, six weeks or so. What's... Um, it's one percent, right? Say in the yep. cities, what's a natural no problem vacancy rate? About, that you, we used to think of about two and a half percent, right? So okay, the, yeah, and the, the vacancy rate and the unemployment rate are kind of intertwined. So mm. if you believe the RBA's forecast that the unemployment rate's heading up to you know four and a half ish, then um, you would pretty much yep. draw a line with the unemp- with the vacancy rate that it's going higher as well. 
Okay. Right. Okay. We might hold it right there for the moment, folks. And, 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 and I think everybody will find it very, very interesting to digest all that. Uh, I, I just trying to do something of a conclusion on the, on that part of the show, Tim. So you, you think vacancy rates will rise a bit. You think there's a number of factors going on. You're actually not entirely convinced by these uh, three months of property price lifts that we've just seen. And you, you think it could be a dead cat bounce. Having said that, you see a period in the forward numbers out um, uh, a year, year and a half, where you think the undersupply becomes an issue again and house prices start to rise. Is that, is that, yeah, so I think the, that the things, the things that matter, right? as I said, the things that matter are in the, the background. You do need that undersupply story to be confident that prices are going to be rising. We're only just transitioning mm-hmm. into that, you know, more um, fundamental undersupply mm-hmm. now. Secondly, mm-hmm. you need the catalyst, okay. and the catalyst typically is rates going down. And the RBA are trying mm-hmm. to convince everyone they're not going to do that in the in the next mm-hmm. uh, nine months or so. Um, yeah, our view is they probably will be forced to do that in early 2024, um, and then be dragged into right. a more extended easing cycle. And I would say the other okay. thing, which I haven't mentioned, which I do think is very important, there is another factor that over the medium term is likely the smoking in all of this. And we're, we're getting, well, we've got a million um, baby boomers entering retirement over the next decade. And that is obviously setting off the biggest intergenerational wealth transfer. Now, in part of that, it's probably going to be the way that the love affair with housing moves down through to generations X, Y, and Z. And, um, that will actually, I think, be one of those additional things over and above supply and demand and interest rates that could set up the next decade for this sort of love affair with housing. As wealth is moved down, basically forms housing deposits, gets the next generation set into a different way. So the inheritance goes back into the housing stock. Exactly. And I think the issue with that is yeah. becomes quite you know, un- unequitable for those that are not uh, lining up for that inheritance mm. transfer, but it is... I think a very yep. important dynamic that'll play through. Okay. Okay. Terrific. We'll leave it there. We'll be back in a moment, folks. News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winger? <laughs> <laughs> Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly Virgin anymore. <laughs> Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from. Hello and welcome back to the Australian's Money Puzzle. James Kirby, Wealth Editor at The Australian with Tim Tui. Tim is the Chief Economist and Strategist at Yara Capital. And I I hope you've been listening earlier uh, to his views. They're very distinct, aren't they? They're quite independent, as I said. And I thought it was great to have him on to get to basically, in some ways, stress test some of the narrative of some of the dominant themes that we've had on even this first uh, few uh, series of property focused money puzzle podcasts on Tuesdays. Okay, now what I've done, if you are sending questions in, of course, if they have a property uh, dimension, they may very well end up on the Tuesday show. And what I've collected, what I've curated, 
for Tim here is uh, some questions specifically on economics uh, and sometimes on property. So I'll get straight into them. Tim, this one's from John. He says, as a data geek, I thought you would be interested in the data below. Using regressive coefficient analysis, data dispels the myth that capital cities outperform regional centers. Aha. Okay, Tim Toy, is that true or false? Um, that's an interesting one because... Um I'd like to see him do that analysis, uh, excluding the um, the COVID period, because what we saw was a really sharp acceleration in regional pricing as people moved yeah, the, out. Yeah, the COVID. And um, mm, mm. I think what we've seen Tree in this change. initial little rise in house prices that you were talking about earlier on, the regional mm. cities uh, are yet to really participate in that on average. Yes. So um, yes. Yeah, I would I would suggest that. Uh, the sample size is going to be super important in that reaching that conclusion. Okay, you're skeptical. He's skeptical, John. Uh, probably, probably how far back you regress. I imagine is very important as well, because if you just picked up in a short term, in a decade, even if you picked up that tree change, that really was a historic and a historical outlier. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, but I think what's also happening is that the cost of living is sort of forcing people into the regional centres a lot more, and uh, that's. Mm no doubt contributed to a very different price environment over the last seven or eight years than what we've seen over the previous quarter of a century. Mm. And in a way, it was, uh, it was in some ways, it was very good to see. I mean, if we've just kept going in Sydney and Melbourne forever, it wouldn't have been very good at all. And, it, and we saw... Uh, we saw regional towns pick up for the first time in many, many years. And we saw extraordinary things. We were just talking recently about Perth. Uh, not so much about Perth, but how Perth was outshined and um, Hobart, for instance, being dearer than Perth, stuff that you could never have conceived even a decade earlier. But whether that will hold, uh, we'll have to see. Okay, now Ted says, what are the odds of interest rates being cut in 223 in Australia and the US? Oh, in 223. Well, in 222, they were all talking about it in 223. But in 223, they're not talking about it anymore, I don't think. Yeah, there's been... You were saying early next year, did you say, Tim, in, in previous part of the show? Yeah, I do think it's likely um, that... In Australia, we'll be cutting by, if not the end of the, well, probably the end of the first quarter um, is where I'd probably put the line mm -hmm. in the sand. Um, and that would require the, the Fed to actually um, commence easing very late this year, this calendar year, which I actually do think is feasible. Okay. Um, and there's a host of reasons for it, but uh, and the reality is um, <laughs> if you look at the US, it's it basically if you strip out exports, it hasn't grown for about five quarters um, inflation is actually coming down relatively quickly. The labor market is actually starting I to see. loosen up pretty quickly. And I think the reality mm. is they are on the cusp of recording a recession. Um, and then the, uh, yeah. it's, we have it in Europe at the moment. We obviously have it in New Zealand. We can debate whether we're going to see one here. But the reality is we've yes. seen a pretty dramatic snapping of uh, sentiment locally as well. And um, it's, Interest rate hikes at this point of the cycle can get you some really non-linear outcomes for demand, and arguably we're seeing that in retail land at the moment. Mm. So, what do you rate the chances of a recession are here? They're pretty high. It's not a baseline. I'd say it's around about forty percent, yeah. though. Um, okay. Now, we'd, we would okay. be anticipating I'm, if it is, it's going to be a relatively modest one, but and it mm -hmm. certainly is going to feel like one for a lot of consumers. Uh, the thing that bails us out is really the um, that strength in population growth that we were talking about earlier on. That's 
that's a force yeah. that sort of uh, raises all boats to a degree. And we're still, you know, mm. enjoying the benefits of that prior um, strength of commodity prices. So the nominal economy that's been feeding off commodity prices, you know, it's helped corporate profits, it's helped tax receipts, um, and that's really kept the economy ticking along a little bit. So, you know, I think those things matter. Um, potentially a little bit of the Australia's a bit of a beneficiary of the um, the energy revolution or the transition as well, which is sort of lucked out and being, you know, dominant producers of lithium, um, copper, um, LNG, which is all yeah. important. So all those things are actually sort of helping to you know, mitigate some of the risks for us. But a lot of the forces mm. that are causing recessions elsewhere or near recessions are very much yeah. at play here. Okay. Okay. Very good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the commodities of the future. Uh, I think what we might do just. Uh, I can see that we actually have all the last three questions are are all about inflation. So what I'll do is we'll take a short break, and we will be back with them in a in a little trio in a moment. Australian history is full of colourful but forgotten characters, from alleyway gangsters to Cold War spies and eccentric entrepreneurs. There are hundreds of incredible stories of adventurous Aussies that never make it into our history books. Each week I talk to some of the country's greatest history authors, sleuths and yarn spinners to uncover the untold stories of some of our most interesting and offbeat ancestors. The show in black and white can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Australian's Money Puzzle podcast. James Kirby with Tim Tui, the economist at Yara Capital. Now, Tim, all these questions are about inflation. I'll try and, and I'll try and just basically uh, clip them. Uh, Donna says, "Why don't they take the heat out of inflation by increasing super contributions?" That's a that's a one-off. Uh, David says, "Why isn't the government using fiscal policy and cutting spending to pull back inflation?" And Matt says, "The way the media reports interest rate rising, it seems." Every increase is a surprise and that there's only one or two more expected for the year. But inflation is still around seven, way above target. Isn't that a sign that rates are still too low to bring inflation back down? So lots of different aspects and angles there on inflation. Uh, just first of all, do you are you of the opinion that in, uh, uh, inflation in our economy will start to drop from here? Uh, in the sixes and sevens, and and do you think it's going to stabilize? At what point? At what level would it stabilize? Do you think? Yeah, so we were of a view, um, I think, well before a lot of people, that inflation was going to pick up pretty dramatically, particularly in the US, and would spill over to here. But in the middle part of last year, we flipped that view around to say that inflation will start to surprise on the downside, offshore, and eventually it'll get here as well. Mm -hmm. So. We are very much of the view that inflation, even in Australia, will start to dissipate pretty quickly. Now, there are mm -hmm. um, the things that I think that have got people um, concerned, particularly the RBA, is they suddenly sort of shifted the goalposts a little bit. And instead of saying, well, we're concerned about what was going on with consumer spending, business um, surveys, the global outlook, which all have deteriorated. Um, they've suddenly focused on unit labour costs, which is such a, a nerdy concept that will lose your listeners. But in essence, um, what that is, is the cost of labour per hour um, or the average cost of labour per hour divided by productivity. And productivity has fallen away. Mm. Um, so it looks like mm. unit labour costs have gone up a lot. And 
when the central bank thinks about inflation, it thinks a lot about, well, if you know, labor costs are going up, then that means that the risk of future inflation is going to be high. Trouble mm. is that average labor costs are actually been falling. And the thing that's driven up, driven up unilabor costs is just purely a fall away in productivity. Now, productivity, look, we tend to measure it as economists um, quarter to quarter, but you should only ever look at it on long-term trends. You should never yeah. calibrate policy, monetary policy on short-term movements in it. And it's fallen away, I believe, principally because all we, what we all know is that what's driven economic growth recently has been the recovery of the services part of the economy which is by definition mm. A, poorly measured in terms of productivity and B, low productivity anyway. So it's a largely, a, if you want to call it a mix shift, uh, that's driven that. Mm. It's be really, I think, a mistake at this point of the cycle to raise rates from what they think is a rise in unit labour costs. Now, okay. uh, that is yeah. a bit more technical than what I'd normally say on, on, a, on a podcast yeah, no, like no, this, but, but it's a really you, important you, you, dynamic. You, you, it's quite clear, yeah, where you're coming from. But so the inflation starts to drop. So what does it settle at if it settles at all? Yeah, so even the RBA have inflation going down to essentially the top of the target band into um, the middle part of next year. And uh, that's an entirely reasonable, if not perhaps even um, it might come in slightly faster than that. Because most of our so inflation… Three. Is it, Tim, 3% yeah, talking yeah, about? That's right, yeah, 3%. Okay. Because most of our inflation has largely come about through supply side issues that we're all sort of familiar with, most of those have normalised mm. out of the out of the out of the system. So things like freight rates, um, obviously, so the supply chain blockages. So goods inflation is actually turning into disinflation. Um, energy prices are the other big swing factor. So the other thing that can really just move inflation around is services inflation. And in places like the US, they're still really concerned about it because most of what drives services inflation. Is wages, but even the RBA believes mm -hmm. wages here are not the problem. What's driven our services mm -hmm. inflation has been government government administrative prices, so things like energy prices, healthcare prices, yeah. education prices. Um, it is not because there is you know excess labour demand that's driving a massive spike in in, in wages. Wages are actually okay. reasonably consistent. With what the RBA okay, are so that's a big that's a big big change if it goes from sevens. To three inflation in a year. That is yeah. a huge change and a huge change that would involve uh, basically percolate through every aspect of investment, every single aspect that you could consider. Also, make your cash uh, look a little bit better, your cash returns look a little bit better, that's for sure. We must come back to that sometime. Donna and David and Matt, uh, thank you for those questions, those inflation related questions. And hopefully, this uh, was uh, able, we were able to give you some, some steer on that. And remember, it's information, not advice, as always on the show. Okay. Thank you, Tim. Very good. Thank you. Very, very interesting to see where you're coming from. It is quite a distinct view, as it always is. And I really like that. And I really enjoy having a lot of the sort of accepted wisdom challenged. Uh, not for the first time by you. Thank you very Thanks, much. James. Appreciate it. Lovely to have you on. We'll have you on again. That was Tim Tui, everybody, who is the Chief Economist at Yara Capital Group. Okay, thank you for listening to today's episode. And remember, on Thursday, talking about productivity, uh, one, of the, one of the big arguments uh, at the moment is if anything is going to lift productivity, it could be artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence is the special theme of Tuesday's show. And we have Neville Dudley Spencer live from London, an AI 
AI expert who has won the little competition I had as to who would be our volunteer to talk about it among. And thank you again for everybody who suggested names and numbers for me. And uh, uh, we are really looking forward to having a session on AI, what's possible, how to invest in it, how to how to cope with it, basically, what it's going to mean. I'm really looking forward to that. The email, themoneypuzzle at theaustralian.com.au for questions, including questions for the AI session, which you still have 48 hours. Okay, talk to you soon.